1: do we lose something big if we become the people of the screen? From Moses to Gutenberg to the Uversion app, we're talking the digital Bible with our guest, John Dyer, on Device and Virtue. Hey, welcome back to Device and Virtue, where we argue the wrongs and rights of technology and faith in everyday life. We're coming to you
2: from Chicago. I'm Chris. And I'm Adam. Hey, Chris, today's episode is about what if the Bible isn't a book? What if it's a screen or a digital file? I love this topic. Uh, Yeah, Christians have been sometimes
1: called the people of the book because the Bible is the book. But what if our book is a lot more on an iPad now Right, or on our phones? We have John Dyer back. He's back. We couldn't stay away. It's a Dyer doubleheader. (laughs) Nice. (laughs) Oh, Just recently, you remember that we had him on the podcast. He is an author. He's a programmer. He's a theologian. He's the assistant professor of Theological studies at Dallas Theological Seminary, where he's also a vice president. Uh, but he's also a good friend of the podcast, right? And we had him on recently because his book "From the Garden to the City," which is like one of our favorite introductions yeah. to the idea of faith and technology, he did like a upped edition of that, right? So it was super fun to have him there. But he did a second
2: one. <laughs> yeah, he had another book that just came out just a couple months after that. It's called People of the Screen, How Evangelicals Created the Digital Bible and How It Shapes Their Reading of Scripture. That's a super fascinating <laughs> title.
1: We had to ask John back just to talk about this yeah. new book because this is a topic that I was personally interested in when I did my theology studies back in the day. know, I was not doing a PhD. I was doing regular seminary, but I wrote a lot on how the digital context of scripture works out. So John, this is some of his PhD research that he went up adding to a book, adding some more on it, but he really gets into the weeds about he went to specific churches, talked to them about what their reading habits were,
2: and then measured the, the effects. Right. And he found some really interesting effects. He gets into the weeds, but he's got big ideas that kind of work through the book and come out in this episode.
1: So I got a call with him. Let me pitch it over to you. And after we're done, tell me what you think. Well, John Dyer, welcome back to Device and Virtue. Thanks for having me. I'm excited. I'm a little deja vu. We just had you recently. I think it's your fault we're having you twice in a row because you've had two book releases. And this new one is called People of the Screen, how evangelicals created the digital Bible and how it shapes their reading of scripture. How did you get to write this?
3: Man, that's a great question. So I guess I have these two sides. One side is a creator side. I like to code, and make things. The other side is a theological side, where I like to think about things theologically, look at the technological world through a biblical lens. But there's this other side that was just nagging at me of I can create and I can speculate, but what? How do I actually figure out what's happening? How do I do it in a rigorous way? And right. this is my attempt to learn the discipline of sociology. And figure out how can I measure something, not just tell you what I think is happening, but actually find out what's happening. And so that's what I'm doing here. That big question of what happens when we read the Bible on our phones, I want to know. And that's what I'm trying to look for.
1: Wait, I mean, I've had version on my phone for as long as I can think I can remember. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. And in seminary, I had Logos Bible software and still have that. Actually, I restarted my computer right before we were about to get on record to make sure everything was going to work. And immediately Logos Bible software popped up and said, I'm indexing again, because it's always indexing some commentary or another (laughs) Bible download. (laughs) That's the software that pastors use a lot. But we've been living with these screens. Some of us are thinking about how they affect us. I want to ask you all about it. But I wanted to start with this other question before we get to the whole digital Bible question. The Bible wasn't always the Bible the way we think about it when it comes to history to begin with, right? So would you tell us some of the pre-story of the Bible through history? Like we have a scroll, the codex Mm. from the scriptorium to the printing press, versification. I'm saying a bunch uh, of words. Give mm -hmm. us a tour of the Bible through history.
3: Okay. Well, I'm going to assume that what we see in scripture when Moses says, I'm writing it down, I'm just going to assume that all there. So I'll start from that and say, Moses, somewhere around the year 1500 BC, that's what we think, he decided he's going to write some stuff down. And some of what he's going to write, he's actually chiseling into you know stone. But before that, some of what he's writing down has been passed down orally. So the stories that are before him start out orally and are passed from generation to generation. And then he writes some of these things down and some of this is in hard form. And then a little bit later on, we start to get to the development of some type of paper. A lot of times these are scrolls. And so the scroll, or sometimes you'll see in the literature, they don't have the SC part. They just say roll. So it's just a roll. And so that you see a big stack of books, but they're just stack of scrolls over in the corner. And that's what Jesus would have read and what you see in Luke 4, where he pulls out the scroll of Isaiah and he reads from it. And we don't know if he rolled to it or if it was open to that passage. We don't know. But it's always interesting to think about those things. So we've got the technology of the role that is very much a community thing, that one synagogue might own one, but there's not multiple of them. Each book is separate from one another, so the books of the Bible are not all in sequence. Right. They are kind of referred to in these big categories the law right. and the prophets and the writings. Right. They're big chunks, but they never right. said the Bible. And then, as you mentioned, See, there was a, a table of
1: contents in the front that said Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua. It's, 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 yeah.
3: And the great thing is that today we scroll all day, and it's a, a reference back to this technology of scrolling.
1: <laughs> oh, funny. You know? Okay. Got it. Um, got it. Yeah. Fine. Yeah. Good yeah Jesus is
3: unrolling a scroll. Yeah. Yeah. But somewhere around that time, people started developing lighter weight, easier paper that they can use for to-do lists and stuff like that. And so where the scroll is often parchment, it's often made of skin or something like that. And it's stitched Vellum. together to make this a long scroll thing. At yeah. So you get pretty cheap paper being made and people are, like I said, making them for grocery lists and stuff like that. Someone <laughs> thinks well, we could stitch a bunch of these together. and That would be really cool. Well, somewhere in that time frame of the first and second century, the Christians start to decide that they're going to collect the things that Paul has written. And as people start writing down the story of Jesus, they're going to put it in this format. Now, that was a little countercultural because people use paper for unimportant things, but they use scrolls for important things like scripture. But to use paper and to wrap it up in a codex, which is what we call a book now, but a handwritten one, that was a big deal. And uh, A codex. It gets to around
1: C-O-D-E-X, right? Codex, yeah. Yeah. I know the term because yeah, so I studied it in seminary and things, but
3: some yeah. people haven't even heard that term. It was the original term for a book. Exactly, right. So it's just a bunch of pages stitched together, and it's a, yeah early book format. And this made for this whole new technology where you could access back and forth a lot faster. And you could also put a collection of things together. So a scroll can hold all of a big, giant book like Isaiah, but it can't hold Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. It can't hold all of them together. Sure. So there is this thought of why did the Christians decide to do this thing where you could put it all together after one? And one hypothesis is that there's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but there's all these other Gospels out there, Gospel of Peter and stuff like that. And the thought was, if we could put all of the definitive ones in one thing, that would say, this is the true scripture. But you couldn't do that with a scroll. You could only do that with a uh-huh. codex.
1: Huh. So they could use this new technology to bind yeah. the same story together.
3: Exactly. Or to bind kind of the officially recognized ones. So the technology of a, of a codex lets you access in a different way what you can see. It's more portable, but it also allows for this concept of a canon, of the official stuff. And it okay. allows us to rethink what we mean by what is and is doesn't belong in this book. So it changed things quite a bit.
1: And then we get to something like the printing press, another technology that shapes the Bible, essentially.
3: Yeah. So this codex thing was neat. And even Muhammad, when he comes along, he looks at the Christians and he's the one that we think comes up with this term, the people of the book, because he refers Mm. to Christians that way. They're the ones that carried this book around. But there's only a couple of them because they're so hard to produce. The Bible right. is just 500,000 words. It's an incredible amount of effort to produce one. So when the printing press comes along, that makes it cheaper. Now, not right away in the 1400s when this starts to happen with movable type, it's still not even close. It's kind of like a like a Tesla today. If you have a hundred thousand dollars, it's great. But it's still not a consumer product in any way.
1: I was in New York a few weeks ago, and they have a Gutenberg Bible actually sitting in the New York Public Library in the middle of Manhattan. You can go see it under glass. And of course, those are around. But yeah, not something that just anyone could own.
3: Yeah, But the printing press does make it possible for Luther and those to be able to produce tracts and other things really fast about the Bible and to be able to start moving toward the Protestant Reformation. And so it's not really probably until the 1800s when paper gets really cheap and the early 1900s where it gets cheap enough to where there's lots of English versions and everybody has their own individual copy of the Bible. So it hasn't been 500 years. It's really been the last 150 or so years where there's a sense that we would have my own, maybe multiple copies in my home, not just a church Bible, but a family Bible and then also an individual Bible. That's been a pretty fast move in the last century or so.
1: Right. Really big in the sense of I couldn't just go do Bible reading on my own for the most of
3: history. That's not
1: how Christians interacted with scripture because they didn't have that in their home.
3: Yeah. And especially if you grew up in any kind of more evangelical ish background, you know, the Bible study has been a big emphasis. It's just so important to read your Bible. We do Bible reading plans. I made a Bible reading plan generator.com for all that stuff. But that's a kind of Uh, new behavior that. Regular everyday Christians haven't had a Bible at home to read until the last maybe 150 years or so. So really only like 10% of Christianity has had this. And then Judeo-Christianity, it's like 5% of that history.
1: I think some people have thought of that, and I think others, uh, really, that's a new idea. So, I'm so glad you're telling us about this, because you write this book called People of the Screen, and I think some of us could think, man, this is just a huge change. Technology is finally affecting the Bible. (laughs) But wait, (laughs) technology has affected the Bible for the history of the Bible. So, tell us about sort of what's happened with the digital bible you in your book you start talking about four different phases over the last i don't know Mm. 30 or 40 years i'd love to hear
3: sort of how you framed that out yeah so i was again interested in this question of what happens when we read the bible on our phones what's different and i remember thinking about this even when i was a youth pastor about the year 2000 i got a little compact ipad oh yeah it was an old windows mobile device that had a bible on it and i was so excited because i'm there with my youth group kids and I can look up any verse at any time. And that was really exciting to me. I want to come back to that. But okay. this, so these four phases, when I started looking into it, I realized that even back in Spurs, the nineteen fifties, the early computers People were doing things with them that weren't just reading, but were other types of experiments like producing a concordance. If you've ever heard of Strong's numbers or Thompson Chain reference, these kinds of things, those were all done by hand. And so there were some early (laughs) academics and early people thinking, man, we could do this all electronically. There were also scholars that would look at how many times Paul used particular words and do all kinds of statistics with computers. That was all happening in the 50s, 60s, 70s. That early? That yeah, early. yeah. And it's not really until the late 70s, early 80s, where you start seeing what we would think of as Bible software, where it's meant for someone to read on a screen. And the okay. very first okay. commercial application is 1982. So we're just over 40 years at this point in the first commercial app. There was a few shareware things before that. But the one we know sure. is,
1: yeah, shareware. Sorry, I forgot about that uh, term, but yeah, yeah. What's the name of the first
3: Bible thing, the software that you. It was actually came now, just a little south of me in Austin, Texas, which is a fun thing to see. And it was a company called okay. Bible Research Systems. And oh, the software yeah. that they made is called the word processor. So, a little joke there. A little the fun. Word, but, uh, oh, whoa. Yeah. I don't remember so that the one. word. Processor, yeah. yeah, yeah and yeah. Th- these two guys were Kent Oshel and Bert Brown. They were workers for Intel at the time, and they were Christians, and they thought we could make Bible software. And so they went for it, and they did it and came out with that. And it was a really a pretty successful early software application. It's even fun to look at. There was no place to advertise. So the first place they advertised was at Byte Magazine just a computer magazine at the time. So it's, oh, oh, funny. it was okay. a whole era in the early eighties, but the four big eras I'm trying to identify was that early academic one. Then the desktop era, eighties onward, then the internet era starting in 95 when the internet went public oh. and then the mobile era. And that's a harder one oh. to date because we have mobile okay. things. Like I was saying when I was a youth pastor, the year 2000, but probably the iPhone is a better marker for Mobile devices sure. being really broad and not just nerdy people like me, then it was something that regular yeah. people bought.
1: Sure. So, like you know, 2007 yeah. is when the iPhone shows up, right? So. Yeah, and I remember I loved some of these names that you have in the book, Logos Bible Software or Accordance. You mentioned Olive Tree. I remember this. I mm-hmm. think I had this on a Palm Pilot. I mm-hmm. think I had an Olive Tree Bible on a Palm Pilot. But I think what a lot of people are going to recognize are things like U Version, which has got to be—is that
3: the most popular in the mobile era? Absolutely. You know, originally U Version wasn't a mobile site; it was a website. And then they pivoted oh. to that, that really the couple days before, you know, the iPhone came out in 2007, but you couldn't make apps for it. It was only websites. And then in 2008, they launched the app store and they decided to just pivot and go full bore into that. And it was like a day before it launched, they decided to change the app name from U version to just Bible. And that is what <laughs> got the search engine to change. Yeah. They made that last minute call. And so when people search for Bible, they would find that because Version is a great name, but I think most people are just going to look for the Bible. And that's how they found
1: yeah, it. Yeah, you made some good branding change there. Let's go with what works. Yeah. But uh, One fun thing I learned from your book is that the NET, which is a translation that a lot of people don't know, but it's one of my favorites, the New English Translation. I didn't realize, sort of like 1995-ish, I think. I didn't realize that was around before there was ever a print version of that. You said that sort of came yeah. about when some... Linguists and professors decided to do an online-only version of a Bible
3: translation. Yeah, yeah. There's so many fun little stories along the way here. Different tributaries and the Net Bible, so N E T or Net joke. They were yeah. They I were. Mean, I literally Bible. didn't org. even get
1: that joke. I've always called it yeah. the i T. I've never called it the Net <laughs> yeah. Bible, so I didn't realize they were sort of yeah. going for the cool internet term.
3: Also, <laughs> yeah. Well, so this was a group that owned Bible.org. They had posted a bunch of Bible studies and they wanted to be able to post a Bible. And at the time there really weren't sites like Bible Gateway. So you couldn't just find the NIV online and they couldn't license it. And they just decided, well, what if we just made our own and we made notes and we decided to experiment with publishing something online first because they thought, well, we could do 10 times the notes if we did it online. We don't have to worry about printing it. So they, they released it online. And then the, later on, was like, well, can we put this in print? And it, and it reversed back into print. To use a McLuhanism.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it is a McLuhanism. <laughs> yep. So you end up doing this whole history of just all these programs that came out and sort of how people built them and what developers got involved and what decisions were made. So it's really fascinating. But then later in your study, because I think some of this was research, right? Like doctoral research that you were doing. So you actually did sort of a social science approach
3: to looking at how we actually interact with the digital Bible, right? Yeah. So I'm going to say there's probably three sections. The first one is a lot of historical background work. And then there's a section where I spend a lot of time interviewing software developers, those who are at Logos, uh, Bible Gateway, and UVersion. And then the last part is working with users and churches and trying to develop something where I can actually test these hypotheses say, is there anything different about it? Do people see the exact same thing in print and on screen, or can I detect any differences? So I'm curious
1: about that. You know, when I first dove into your book, I was thinking you're going to have all these sort of theological approaches about what we should think about a digital Bible or media ecological, which is one of my favorite approaches to looking at the way that communications creates cultures and how they're related. But you really spent a lot of time just looking at how do people actually use a digital Bible and what are the effects? Can you tell us about how you structured that study? I know you like even went into actual churches
3: and talked to Mm -hmm. people. Yeah, so I picked several churches in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. And all large-ish, mostly kind of evangelical-ish type churches, one SBC, a couple of different ones. And what what I decided to do is really three things with them, You maybe say four. So one of them was I did a survey with them of just what do they use for what types of activities. So I asked them for your devotional reading or long-form reading or memorization or study, what type of technology do you use? Do you use print? Do you use a computer? Do you use a phone? Do you use a tablet? ask them questions like that on a survey sure. so I could just tell you the data. I also interviewed big groups of them in multiple things. And then I did two big tests with them. One of them was to divide the groups in half and have half read the book of Jude in print and half read it on a screen. And then I asked them a series of comprehension and interpretation questions. And then I also mm-hmm. had them go home as the fourth thing and do a 10-day reading plan. And see how they varied if they did it in print versus on their phones so, and get that data back and see oh. do I see something different about the media or age or gender or any yeah. of those kinds of things? What all was affecting it? And it was a couple hundred people, so there's enough data to really be able to sh- do some nerdy statistics and stuff like that.
1: Yeah, right. I know you also asked people about their own perceptions about how they use the Bible on their phone or in a book yeah. and why. Tell us some of the things that we learned.
3: Yeah, start with just what do people say that they do? What do they use? And what was interesting is when I gave them these 10 or 15 different activities you could do with the Bible and which medium they used, it really did separate out a bit. People would say things like, if I just want to do a quick verse lookup, that's when I use my phone. Um, okay. But if I wanted to do something more devotional, they say, no, I really prefer print. And then if they said, I want to study, they would say maybe they prefer their computer. And then I might ask them something about environments. What do you do at home or at work or with your kids? And again, it all differentiated there. So people at work don't really want to bring out a printed Bible. They want to use their computer and maybe hide it a little bit. But if I okay. ask them about okay. with their kids, they would actually saying they like print because they felt like print communicated something to their kids about what the Bible really is that they didn't feel like their tablet could do. It's really a book. Yeah. yeah right. <laughs> yeah. So it brings up this whole idea that, so James Watts is a kind of a philosopher of media and he would say the scriptures have these three different dimensions to them they have really like an idea dimension what is it actually saying, a hermeneutical dimension and then they have a performative dimension which is what we do in public with them when we carry the scriptures mm. or we hold the bible mm. and then this last one is closer it's this mm-hmm. iconic dimension which is that, that the physical object means something to people that is separate from the text but related to the text itself And so, this is so important to people with their kids or maybe a wedding or a funeral or why a pastor might put notes on an iPad but still hold up that Bible sometimes when he or she is preaching because it (laughs) has this symbolic thing to them. And it's not worship, but it it communicates something to you. And I think if we go back to the beginning of the story we told about Moses, a lot of these Old Testament passages, they say, it is written, it is written. And I think the reason why that statement is there is that writing was costly in that day, right? Right. And so if you're going to write something down, it better be some of the most important things. So the things you write down are the real things. The things you say, maybe you're secondary, and the things you go on your podcast are maybe tertiary. But anyway, this is something that the Bible is more than just ideas on a page. It's also this whole symbolic world.
0: This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson publisher of nine lives and county a bounty hunter's journey to faith hope and redemption written by Dwayne dog the bounty hunter chapman nine lives and counting not only offers a fresh perspective on well-known life events but also ventures into behind the scenes territory and backstories never shared publicly nine lives and counting is available everywhere audiobooks are sold Visit thomasnelson.com slash audio to learn more.
3: Well, the point is that the Bible is more than just the words on a page and all the things surrounding it seem to affect individuals and their communities. And so the people I was talking to were responding and saying, I think this medium is better for this activity or this location or with this group of people.
1: You know, this is an area that I wrote on myself like a long time ago with my original Mm -hmm. master's research was, if the Bible is not a book, then what is it? And so that's why I was so excited to talk to you about this. The realization that Technology was really embedded into what we thought the word of God was. was a pretty big realization, even on my part as I was writing it, right? And I was looking at you talking to your audiences. I mean, you're talking about one guy standing up in a church who was telling you, oh, "I just worry the digital's good, but I just worry about us getting away from the Bible." And he's holding a, a print Bible. <laughs> I pictured sort of a leather-bound something in his hand while he was talking, and he was sort of shaking it back and forth in his hand. And for him, that is the Bible, that book. And it really does push us, from, especially from the evangelical perspective that I grew up in, we have to think more deeply about what is the Word of God when we start realizing we can do it in these different forms.
3: Yeah. And so, I think the interesting thing was that when I was asking these people, what did they like to use? They could differentiate that. But when it came down to, I said, so, so what do you do when you're running out the door and you're busy and you're late? Do you pick the most appropriate one of these mediums? And that's where they would often say no, that, that they're all gravitating in some way toward the easiest thing. So they're gravitating toward their phones more often. Yeah. And so this is where I kind of make a little joke that their favorite, you know, Bible version is the NAB, yeah. <laughs> which I call the nearest available Bible. And so they just gravitate toward that. But to your point, the sense of what is a Bible, we even have things like we say children's Bible. Even though we know that's a comic book Bible with only selected stories that are told in a sanitized way. So that term Bible is really this category in some sense. It's not technically a set of texts. And so I I love, this is one of the things I love about the study of technology is it always helps us reflect on what we mean by things and reflect on who we actually are because it forces us to ask and answer questions we've just let be unfocused for a long time.
1: Some people really stuck with print Bibles and other people with digital Bibles. It seemed like you were saying people would flip back and forth between the two. Was it the
3: older people that stuck with print Bibles and the younger people that stuck with their phones? Not exactly. There were some people that would say, hey, I only want to do you know print. I don't want to do anything else. And there were a few people that would say, hey, look, I've gone 100% digital, and I'm never going to open up a print Bible. Yeah. But the vast majority, probably 80% in between, were always doing a mixture of things. They were saying, I really like my print Bible, but I always pull on my phone to search for something. Or I use my print Bible when I'm in line at Home Depot, and I want to share a verse with my mom or something like that. Okay. There was some ageification a little bit on there, but not a ton. The difference in the age was really when I, if I asked a question of, what have you noticed is different? Since the advent of the digital Bible, if somebody's you know over forty, they can remember their first Bible software application, they can remember their first phone. Thank you for saying yes <laughs> yeah, if you ask someone who 's under twenty, they kind of look at you quizzically and they 're like what do you mean the time before the digital Bible? Sure, That's just their world. I mean, the Bible has always been online. It's always been something that you search uh, on Google to find the verse. You don't paraphrase it and says, I think Paul says. You just search for it, right? Yeah, right. So their perspective about media was completely different. So this leads me to some questions I want to ask that get a
1: little bit beyond your book. Not entirely you uh, address some of these, but what are the effects of us living with scripture on the screens or scripture is digital. I do have all my print Bibles sitting on some shelves behind me. I've kept a few. Finally, I was like, ah, I should, I have 20 Bibles here. I should let a few of these go. I don't need all these different versions. I can get them easily online. I'm going to keep one or two that have some nostalgia to me. One from college that I used every day and is really dog-eared and I just sort of want to have that, but I don't ever open it. I use the digital Bible all the time. You have the older people in this church that sort of see that transition and maybe my age, but then you have these younger people that have just really, this is what they've always done is on their phone. But you still say we're sort of living in that between space. What is it like in
3: 25 years? Well, I do think 10 or 15 years ago, there was this big discussion that we were going to go all digital and the book was dead. And I think what we've really seen in the last couple of years is there's been a resurgence of people saying, I still want print books. I want to just Go be absorbed in this single-use technology of the book, and so my sense is that's still going to be true with religious texts. It's still going to be true that people are going to want vinyl on occasion. Yeah, it's still going to be true that people want a real painting on their wall. They want to print out photographs. They, they love their screens, but they do want some of those tactile things that they can orient around. So I don't see the printed Bible going away. Now I do see religion in America changing significantly. Sure. But of those people that stay religious, I think we're in a more of a multimedia environment. What I mean by multimedia is that there's a mixture of not just print and screen, but print and screen and audio. Because one of the big things that we don't right. necessarily think about as much is just how much people are consuming audio even on the scripture side of things. So like we're in a podcast right now. This is how a lot of people like to consume things when they're doing something else. Yeah, yeah. That also means that scripture is this secondary thing that you do while you do something else. So a lot of people, I was just so surprised by this as I talked to them, that they would be doing something like, um, they say, I I listen to scripture in the background while I'm mulling the lawn or while I'm doing laundry or something like that. It was almost more like the way people listen to music. So they weren't listening to it with deep intention, they just wanted to kind of saturate them, yeah. And that that seems like a whole new use of the Bible that we've never had before—the ambient audio Bible. Yeah, exactly. Now this wasn't a huge percentage, but it was bigger as maybe 10, 20 percent of people reported doing something like that, where they would put it on the background. And in the old days of audio Bibles, you tapes and CDs or <laughs> right, some other media, right. they were costly and they were hard to use. But mm-hmm. on a phone, it's pretty much all free. And it just means that lots of people are trying it that would have never tried it before. And they're listening while they read, they're just doing a whole lot of other things. And like we mentioned before, there's this reverse into thing where we talked about scripture starting out orally, and we're sort of returning to that with audio, but in a different way. Listeners of
1: Device of Virtue have probably heard me tell the same story over and over about Augustine when he's young in Rome. The church father walks by his mentor in the church, Ambrose, and Ambrose is standing in the front of the church reading from the podium Bible. Of course, there'd only be one Bible, as we were talking about before, and he had the nice one up front. And Augustine sort of walks by in the back and sees him reading up front, but he doesn't hear any sound from Ambrose's lips because Ambrose is reading silently. And this was weird to Augustine because always when you read the Bible, you read it out loud. Your book was more like audio Bible on a cassette tape or for an 80s reference or an audio Bible on our phone where the reader was just the person decoding the sound and sort of pulling out the vox, the voice of God from the scripture and voicing it for everybody else. And so that audio Bible sense, the Bible as the voice of God, seems to have been really the default mindset from my perspective on how the church fathers saw scripture. And so for us to go back to the audio Bible on our phones, maybe a return to a feel of the voice of God, the Bible as the voice, not the print.
3: Yeah, And And I'm genuinely interested to know the study that I did that we could talk about is the difference between reading on the screen and reading in print i'd love to do a study on what people hear differently if they listen to a passage versus read it with their eyes but what so i'll go into this and if you don't mind just go into a little bit of what happened when i had them read in print and on screen yeah. in jude and i chose jude just because nobody reads jude <laughs> and so it looks <laughs> like a it looks like the bible but nobody's read it before so they wouldn't be predisposed to answers that's smart so here's what i found just in quick summary is that I asked them a couple of comprehension questions to see. And I found that this is an interesting result, is that women tended to score the same on print and phone, but men tend to score a good amount less on the screen. Funny. Okay. And so I'm not exactly sure what that is, but there are some studies that for all the problems in the way that we talk about gendered things and that we stereotype people. So I want to avoid that. Sure. There does seem to be some data out there that even as young as little boys and girls, they tend to approach technology and screens differently. And some of that is probably socialized. Some of that may be somewhat biological and patterns, but there does seem to be some differences there that are worth us thinking through. But I think the more interesting results weren't the comprehension side, because we can talk about reading comprehension on screens and there's, there's just dozens of studies over the last 40 years. But I think it was more the interpretation and spiritual effects that for me were interesting. Hmm. So here's the big one. is I asked them, what did they think the point of Jude was? And then how did reading Jude make them feel? Okay. So kind of an interpretation question and then a spiritual question. Okay. So when I asked them what they thought the point of Jude was, the print readers said, I think this is primarily about God's judgment. And then the phone readers said, I think this is about God's faithfulness. So I'm like, Hmm. wow, they are seeing something pretty different in the text. But then here's where it gets even crazier. When I asked them, how did that make you feel? The print readers who said, I think this is about God's judgment, they said it felt they felt encouraged by reading that. But then when I asked the phone readers, how do you feel after seeing what you interpret to be God's faithfulness? How do you feel? And they said discouraged and confused and that they wanted to read it again. And that to me, I was going, what? They're having opposite interpretations of the book, but then it seems like it leads them to different spiritual feelings about God in the end. You think that's the screen? Okay, well, here, let me give you my (laughs) speculation here. So, and this is where I want to make a change. I'm
1: skeptical, but I'm interested, right? When what you found. Yeah. Yeah.
3: So, so there's the data part of it. This is where in the sociology part, where we say, I did the test, I asked them the question, I tabulated the results, I can see that there's a statistical difference between the two in terms of what they interpret and then how they felt. But now we're going to go interpret it. We're going to say, what do we think that means? Like, why do we think that? And this is where I think that it's not just the screen itself, but it's the whole world of the screen. It's all of what that represents. So the early reading studies comparing... What happens when people read on screen versus print? And those were big CRT monitors, not that CRT, the cathode ray tube CRT. Those were the big old, <laughs> big boxy screens. And those were hard to read. And so it was really about the technology there. What we've seen over the last four years is that as the screens get better, right. it's not eye strain, it's not any of those things, it's something else. And here's what I think is happening okay. is that when people are reading on screen, the kinds of verses they typically see are going to be on social media. And there's some research done by Pete Phillips and others that would say most of the verses they get shared on Twitter or Instagram or whatever, they tend to be more positive verses, moralistic, therapeutic, yeah, theistic type verses.
1: Exactly. I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Plans for a hope Yeah, exactly.
3: I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, all that kind of stuff. People don't sure. post like... God is stomping on the blood of the wicked and their blood is in his toes. They don't post those (laughs) verses. So I think the God that they associate with the screen is a little happier, a little nicer, a little softer. But print is a strict medium that doesn't change. It's there and it's solid and it's a little judgmental. And I think they associate those things. But I think they also associate print with something that is a little bit more stable. It's a little bit more sure. It's a little more confident. It makes them encouraged. And we associate with our screens kind of all of our screen anxiety from interest rates to inflation to FOMO Mm. to politics, all that sort of stuff. And so when we pull that thing out, it has all that wrapped around it and it colors what we see and don't see, even the biblical text.
1: So some of that recontextualization of me having a verse and then maybe getting a notification at the same time of my mother-in-law. It really sort of changed sort of the feelings they have around me reading the scripture on my phone.
3: Yeah, and so if all I've seen on screen that it's verses, they always have a flower background or something like that. Then right. I'm going to tend to see screen based. The screen God makes me happy, but he makes me sad at the end. He's nice, but he makes me feel discouraged and that kind of thing because I, that's how I feel when I see photos online or when I see terrible shootings online. I associate all of those things with the screen reading. And I think it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. And especially with that shift to audio, what do we think about audio and what are the associations we have with that medium technology and for?
1: Quite a long time ago, Scott McKnight, Bible Scholar Scott McKnight, did an informal study of what pastors were posting to Twitter in terms of verses. And he concluded, we're really thinning the Bible down to very few verses, (laughs) right? Like very little, like the same things get posted over and over. And 90% of the text never shows up in sort of that kind of form. And for him, that meant, Going back to the lectionary or the traditional Bible in a year kind of form that a lot of your more traditional churches Mm -hmm. use to read through, not quite all, but a lot more of the text and that how important going through those readings in our churches were to sort of counteract that, I don't know, versus becoming little celebrities.
3: Yeah. Yeah. I think another fascinating study would be to look at maybe 10 or 20 big churches that call themselves Bible churches and look at how many passages they actually cover in a year versus right. what the lectionary covers, that'd be a great thing. But so, so that's the big difference between print and screen. But I think software itself, there's some other more subtle things. So as I interviewed people and started trying to tag all that, there's all these little funny things that I saw too. And one that I'm very fascinated with is this idea that with, with the digital Bible, I'm able to get definitive answers more carefully and more clearly and I can't print. So that's what have, people said. Yeah, exactly. So I would ask them, why do they like their Bible software app? And they would talk about which one they liked and what they had. And there was this kind of pretty consistent refrain among maybe a quarter or a third of the people that would say, as long as I have the right resources, I know I can get to the answer. So for some people, it was saying in a small group setting, you know, when someone brings up, I think the Bible says, and nobody really knows, they could search for it and they could find it. And they can they can have the exact answer. And for other people, it was saying, if I have the right resources, then I can know. And, you know, in, in the Protestant tradition, there's this Purpose-y. big, giant theological term, perspicuity. Yeah, <laughs> it's just the idea that most of us can know what the Bible says. It's not that hard. And really what it's saying is, I don't need an authoritative church interpretation. But it's also just saying, God right. made it so we can get it. He communicated with us we we'll that I call this secondary perspicuity where people are going, I can understand it if I've unlocked the right resources. If I have the right downloadable content and, and game add-ons, then I can get to it. It will be clear.
1: I might need to do some study on it, but it will be clear. Is that-
3: yeah. And I think even more, not just I need to do Bible study, but I just, if I can purchase the right resources through the digital media, mm. then it will see, be clear. But it, it wouldn't be without that app. It wouldn't be without, I can click on the word and get a Greek definition or whatever it is. That's what makes right. it clear. And those of us who have studied it, we know that sometimes learning Greek and Hebrew doesn't make it clear. It actually brings up more questions. But there is a sense that like, I can not just trust the text, but I can trust the app. And that shift of trusting the, the app over the text, that's pretty important to be aware of. I think it's really important. I was going to ask
1: you, as we were finishing up, what are the theological changes that result in how people use these things? Because I'm convinced that our behavior winds up changing some of what we believe. And not everyone's going to think that, but I do think that. And so, for instance, that idea of double-clicking into a word and really zooming in, if we're, everyone's doing that over and we can long press on that word or whatever we do, double clicking is the old way of doing it. Like, or in Logos, I right click on it and then I go down search on lemma and do my word search and things. What is the theological effect of that? Or what is the theological effect of, of the topical search results? And then that, how does our use of scripture change what we believe about scripture? Yeah.
3: Well, I think if we look in scripture and we ask scripture, what does scripture say we're supposed to do with scripture? That word read, it's not there very much. It was study. Maybe the Bereans get a little bit of credit in that one verse, you know? Right, right. right, right most, yeah. We
1: teach that verse a lot. It's a good one, but yeah, we teach it a lot.
3: Yeah. But what we maybe sometimes neglect is just how often it says, memorize and meditate and do. And so mm-hmm. you think about an older audience hearing, they would, the only way to have access to it is if they memorized it and meditated on it and then did it. Right. And I think sometimes we can become so distracted by studying that can become something that feels like we're accomplishing something by studying. I don't ever mean to say that we shouldn't, but that becomes the, the object rather than a step toward the next thing. And so then we study the things that we like and we study the things that maybe reinforce the things we already think and take us deeper in rather than studying the things that maybe challenge us and push us outside of what we want to do. I mean, the Jesus of Scripture... Man, he's not a real comfortable guy, you know? And sometimes he pushes me if I actually read him well and then if I try to do the things he says. So there's all those old comic book jokes that when Jesus says, I sell everything you have and follow me, and then you see the preacher saying, Now nah, I'm gonna tell you why that's not actually what he meant, because you, you <laughs> yeah. come up with all these tools that can help you push it in a different direction. So yeah, I think my point would be that the print world kind of gets us toward an orientation of reading by yourself. The digital world has an orientation toward studying lots of facts and details, but the thing itself tells us to meditate and to do, not so much to study.
1: There's a lot more I'd love to ask you about this, but I think people are going to need to (laughs) pick up your book because you do all of the homework in this book for people of the screen. You go through all the research and you even have the graphs. So I think this is a really important study for us to think about how this changes us. And then we're going to need to study probably again, and we probably won't really know what happened for
3: about a hundred years, as far as I'm
1: concerned. We need the distance.
3: (laughs) Well, and I think I would say, I did some experiments, but if I was encouraging a listener, I would say, do some experiments on your own. Try out, really be attentive to your media usage. Maybe just listen to scripture for a month on an audio thing. Try out a couple of different things and see what you see differently. And then do that with other people. So potentially saying, hey, what if I never looked at or listened to an app, but I actually had someone else read to me and I read to somebody else for a while and tried that out. And that may mm-hmm. be hard for you to be on what type of a family or home situation you have, But I think doing those intentional experiments to see something different can be really helpful and to be aware of it because like it or not, the software developers now have access to you on a direct basis. So we know all the stuff that if something's free, you're the product, someone is going to be experimenting. And when you buy a standalone product like a shovel or a printed Bible, that's all it is. But when you're on an app, you're connected to a whole series of things. And I think, say, for example, the folks at Version, they want you to be in God's word. They want you to read regularly. But they're using that software to try to encourage you to do that. And you are being pushed a little bit by them, I think, toward good things. But it's good to be aware of that as you move along and you think, man, how can I do this more often in community? And how can I do it in a way that it's pushing me to do, not just to know? It's
1: good advice. The final question I have for you is just, what kind of digital Bible do you use on a
3: regular basis? <laughs> or
1: yeah, has anything well, changed right since now, you did the study? <laughs>
3: No. An experiment I'm doing differently right now is a couple of years ago, I made a little website called Y'all version to play off the U version. Yes. Yeah. And some people have wanted to print version. So I'm actually trying to translate my way through the Bible using some Bible oh, software I made to help me do that. And then to create a, a full Y'all version. And it's helping me see things that I wouldn't have seen before as well. And to be deep into the text. So that's a lot of fun. And there's a couple of little fun things in it. And not just the Y'all, one of the other things I wanted to do is in the Old Testament, to translate the Hebrew name for God, not as the Lord, but as four letters, Y-H-W-H in all caps. Yeah. And so, it helps you see something visually. And as you guys know, probably that in Hebrew, when you saw the divine name, someone would say the Hebrew word for for Lord, which is Adonai. And so, traditionally in our English versions, they translated the divine name as the Lord. So, you don't actually ever see that divine name. And it's an interesting right. experiment because they took an, an audio practice and trying to put it into print so our printed bibles have an audio practice embedded in them in the old testament name for god and so now i'm trying to reverse that back out and reprintize an audio practice so that people can see what they should may or may not should say so there's a couple other interesting experiments also trying to take the pronouns for god and do something a little bit different with those in the text so i'm trying some new things
1: John Dyer is one of the smartest and most interesting guys. you probably like me complimenting you right here, both coding and working with the Bible at the same time. I love it. We are going to have to track those projects along with you. Thanks so much for having me. It's been great to have you. Thanks, John.
2: Cool. That was great. That was so fascinating. It's so cool to hear what John's up to now with Y'all version and this idea of bringing Yahweh back into Old Testament. I am going to totally name drop here. I got to chat with Eugene Peterson one time yeah, on the phone, right? right. And the we author, were, uh, translator of the message, yeah, translated the message. We were just talking about the future of the message a little bit, and he was saying, "I would love if we put Yahweh into the translation." When he did it in the nineties, he was like, "People don't really know what it is," but I think we're at a stage today. This was maybe in twenty fifteen or something. People understand what Yahweh means. Yeah, as opposed to using the old term Lord. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, So John's in good company and I hope it makes its way in.
1: Man, this is. What if you put Yahweh into a digital Bible?
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, really appreciated thinking through the Bible in these different formats. We were listening to it and then we were reading it and now we're searching it and listening created this collective church experience kind of thing and print cultivated this personal reading habit and. Now digital is cultivating this sort of look up and study, collect information sort of habits. I think it's really valuable for us to think, how is this shaping how we interpret scripture? Obviously, lots of Christians have lots of opinions about how we read scripture, and so It's worthwhile to think about that. The thing that was perhaps most interesting for me was he talks about this iconic meaning of the Bible. The Bible is this symbol, and he talks about these three dimensions of Scripture, the ideas and interpretation, the performative, but then this iconic one. And I think we're maybe less mindful of what the Bible represents to us a lot of his thinking then ended up talking about the print Bible versus the digital Bible and the meaning of those objects, the meaning of those representations of how we think about what the Bible is and how that cultivates with the smartphone. It cultivates this anxiety, the research he did. They read Jude. They saw a lot of God's faithfulness, but they felt anxiety, this sense of unease in how they're reading scripture and there's almost a stigma around the smartphone, around the iPad, and reading the Bible in that space. Yeah, like in the space of notifications that might be coming down from the top of the screen while you're reading it. Yeah. (laughs) And we have other problems with print, but they're different. It was fascinating. Like They read it in print, they saw God's justice, but they felt a sense of consolation, a sense of grace, gratefulness, gratitude, In what they were reading. And so the fixed nature of the print Bible maybe generates that. But I think also the reverence that we've had for the Bible as a book over the past 400, 500 years is a cultural feeling about the book. It makes me then wonder, okay, let's go 20 years, 50 years down the road. Right what is that attitude towards the smartphone and digital devices at that stage? He even mentioned 20-year-olds that he was talking to, they've never lived without a digital Bible. They don't know anything different. He said that, and I was thinking to my head, maybe their parents, their grandparents, there's still a King James
1: Bible sitting on the shelf. That's the family Bible. There's still this, Sure, your pastor's probably in their 60s, and they are still probably taking the book up there. And so they have the cultural context, even if they themselves have had access to a smartphone Bible forever. Yeah. It even encouraged to me, like, even like my age who grew up with a Bible as a book before obviously we ever had a smartphone, the Bible that we're thinking of in that iconic sense. That you're talking about? Yeah. Is it's bigger in size in my mind. Right. It probably has leather. It may have gold edges yeah. or something like this. It yeah. looks more complicated. It's a kind of book that we don't actually even use. Like mm. no one is thinking of the youth group stack of Bibles with the torn-off front cover right next to the <laughs> ping pong table. Yeah. Right. That's not what we're picturing. We're picturing this sort of technology, but it's almost like an artistic, idealistic, yeah. not even realistic version of the book that becomes the icon of what the
0: Bible is. Yeah.
2: No, that's a great point. And I think it reflects that reverence, but I think it also reflects our cultural understanding of what the Bible is. And that will take a long time to maybe dissipate. How might that also shift as we go into the digital age and as more people use their phones? As children grow up seeing their dad pull out their smartphone when the pastor says, pull out your Bible. And as pastors say this more and more from the stage, pull out your you version or pull out your digital Bible and open to this passage or scroll to this passage. He
1: made the scroll, scroll. Yeah.
2: yeah, yeah. Which I guess is
1: obvious, but he's like scrolls like Jesus had (laughs) and then scrolling on your phone. I'm like, oh yeah.
2: But yeah, I think over the long course, the stigma or the anxiety that we have around our digital devices, I could see dissipating over time. But will sort of this reverence for the fixed book disappear? Probably not.
1: But I think it recedes. And you know how McLuhan says the old technology doesn't disappear, it just turns into art. Yeah. And so this is the idea that some people still have record players, but it's because they're trying to be cool. Yeah. You listen to Spotify yeah. for your daily use, yeah. but the record player is like a cool sort yeah. of artsy thing to do. And it's a lot less people. It's yeah. It's only some. It won't go away. Yeah. I think it'll stay in the art, but I think it stays in this museum-ish Like when I went to Dublin, I saw the book of Kells. You can wait in line to see it. It's in a gorgeous library with multiple floors, like hardwood, (laughs) lofty. Like you just feel like you're in the ideal Irish library setting. And you can look at the famous book of Kells under glass, but that's what it feels like the Bible
2: as book becomes. As he was talking about the ways that we engage through digital devices, a phrase that came back to me, I had to go look it up, was... From a, a prayer in the Book of Common Prayer by Thomas Cranmer, where he says that the prayer is Blessed Lord who has caused all holy scripture to be written for our learning. Grant us mm. that we may hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, these words of the Lord. From the fifteen hundreds he wrote whole, that. Right? Yeah, right. Yeah. And I was thinking, how would that phrase in the digital age be translated? Would it be something like click interact, take notes, and track our daily streaks with scripture. (laughs) Through
1: Christ our Lord, amen. Through Christ our Lord, amen.
2: (laughs) I'm still bringing a stigma around the digital practice. Is tracking our daily streaks with scripture a bad thing? Not necessarily. You know, this quantification, but the click, interact, take notes. His advice was really helpful, I thought, just to be cognizant and conscientious of how our interactions with a digital Bible to collect information, to look things up, and not really to dive deep or be immersed in it is a risk that we run when we're engaging with digital Bibles. The audiobook trend mm, of yeah. listening
1: to the Bible. So I've got you version open. A lot of them, right? You can just hit play. Yeah. And the voice just starts where you are, which is ideal. But he said so many people are doing that while they do chores or yeah. they drive. Yeah. <clears throat> so while they're doing other tasks. But either way, the uptick in audio Bible usage, to me, is much more coherent with the way that the word of God, which was really the voice of God over time, mm-hmm. in the way the church heard scripture, it matches better to the way scripture was thought of through the history of the most of the church. Instead of drilling in, clicking down, exegesis on mm-hmm. the grammar, mm-hmm. which this might shock some Christians, but it's a really recent phenomenon in preaching and the way you do... Yeah that kind of work. Most of the church has written about scripture on a broader terms, the themes of the passage and how it applies right. and the stories or the symbols in the passage and how those apply because people heard it. And so yeah. it zooms your mind out a little bit. Yeah, It was before print yeah. and it zooms your mind out and you think about the themes and absorb the word of God that way. And
2: I think that's maybe a positive. I would generally agree with that. I think the caveat is it's still informed by the print culture in that it's no longer experienced collectively. Okay, We're not right. gathering all together, listening. We're listening to it privately and personally. And so it still has that print notion of yeah. personal devotional experience. And there are churches that still read scripture out loud from the front. And I think that is a worthwhile experience, and I would applaud it.
1: Ironically, the churches, they often say they most adhere to scripture, don't do the scripture readings in their service. Right, right. (laughs) Unlike most of the traditional churches which do.
2: Yeah. But yes. The pastor will read one verse as he's preaching, but it won't be read in long form. I listen to Lectio 365, the prayer app, once in a while, and they have people speaking in English, but they have American accents, British accents, African accents, Australian accents, and I find like Hmm. each of those accents even informs how I'm listening to it and how I take it in those qualities inform how I'm listening to it there but also when I'm in a church service and I'm listening to someone read scripture like maybe I know that person and know their story all of those things are brought to bear in different ways and I think it is worthwhile for us to think about what's a healthy Bible engagement practice look like how could we incorporate these different aspects and John does a great job at helping us think that direction.
1: Okay, Adam, we didn't ask John a vice or virtue, but (laughs) here we are. So (laughs) now that we've been talking about our high-tech Bibles, Mm. I think we should decide the vice or virtue of the comic book Bible. (laughs)
2: <laughs> like the kids picture yeah. bible oh man so like I grew up on yep. this thing
1: John mentioned this about like how kids had these picture books yeah I had this one it was from the 70s wow so I'll take a picture of this and put this online but there's just different short stories where they tell an entire Old Testament story in like yeah. two pages yeah. or three pages and it's got Queen Esther or mm. it's got Jesus looking up towards the sky with the scribes and Pharisees all wearing big purple robes around him or something,
2: you know? And, like, the illustrations are awesome. Intense and, like, extensive. Yeah. Uh, I wonder how they did Ezekiel, <laughs> y- you know? <laughs> yeah, it's,
1: like, a different form of the Bible for sure. Right. But it really informed me a ton for me. Oh, being interesting.
2: Makes a lot more sense now. No, I'm kidding. But it's a comic book Bible. It can probably represent certain things. Like, how do you do Paul's letters in a comic book? It's probably pretty hard. Again, the medium is the message. The medium really puts fences around what you can and can't do. Is it just Paul like sitting at a desk and writing? You know, I don't even think they're in here. Really?
1: I know. I actually found it right here off my shelf. <laughs> I'm flipping to the back of this thing, and I don't think like, it goes through Acts. <laughs> really? Yeah, I did the Gospels and Acts. And then it has like little missionary journey kind of diagrams. Yeah, 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 And you're right. There's like Mm. the book of Revelation is one photo at the (laughs) end and Jesus is knocking at a door. Classic.
2: (laughs) Yes, that's fantastic. When I was working at a book publisher, we did a manga Bible. So kind of, you know, a little bit like anime, but a little more adult, I guess, or something. Manga is a Japanese form of art, I believe. Yeah, like Japanese. That's Uh, hilarious. Not an entire Bible. It was just like inserts of different stories. It's like Jesus shoots fireballs from his hands. (laughs) Right, yeah. He's the last airbender or whatever. I don't know. A vice or a virtue certainly shaped your imagination. For me, I don't think I had a Bible like that. appreciate comics, but I don't read them. I'm going to say it's a virtue because it allows people to use their imaginations, kind of filling in blanks. Even though there's visuals to it, you get to interpret those visuals in more holistic ways and I think that's pretty cool. So I'll say it's a virtue. What do you think? I think it's obvious because <laughs> growing up with it, it really did shape my
1: imagination about certain yeah. things and it's amazing how looking back at the exact same illustrations 30 years later like triggers mm-hmm. a part of my brain mm-hmm. that I haven't thought of in a while.
2: Yeah, it's a little bit like The Chosen is today. It's a visual representation of these stories.
1: Yeah, all right. It makes me think about the Bible on screens in general mm-hmm. and how the text is funnily really lends itself more to print huh. and the screen yeah. Like based on everything else if you're not thinking about reading the bible yeah. we're watching tiktok and youtube yeah. on our yeah, screens yeah, yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. like video is one of the most natural formats for the screen now that there'd be a lot of theological difficulty in saying how do we move from the text to video some people have thought about that but either way yeah. i think the visual bible illustrations are really cool so i'm going to call it a virtue
2: nice Thanks again to John for joining us on another episode of Device and Virtue. Trying to make up for not having him for so long. After eight seasons, (laughs) needed to make up and make things right. Definitely go check out his book, People of the Screen, John Dyer. It will be well worth your time to understand your own reading habits a little bit better.
1: Thank you to our supporters on Patreon every month, giving small amounts to really make this yeah. possible, and it matters a lot it's to us. It's huge to us. Thank you. Check Thank. that out at deviceinvirtue.com.